0: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Marianne Dedouille, an environmental virology researcher in France. We'll be discussing the persistence of human norovirus in natural seawater. Welcome, Dr. Dedouille. Hi, thank you. Let's start off with what is norovirus.
1: So, norovirus is a small virus that mainly causes acute gastroenteritis in people. It's called uh, often the stomach flu or the winter vomiting disease. And actually, many people have encountered this virus during their lives. It's been discovered following an epidemic in a school in Norwalk, Ohio, in 1968. So, that's where it, it got its name from, Norwalk, or so norovirus. And it's a genus of several viruses among the family of Caliciviridae. Ruridae. And this family is characterized by a short RNA genome, which is roughly one-fourth of the SARS-CoV-2 genome. So it's a really small virus. And also the viral particles are very small because they, they measure something like 30, 50 nanometers. So the virus infects people. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it mainly. So it's human neurovirus that infects people, but there are also neuroviruses that infect other mammals like pigs, cattle, cats, dogs, and marine animals. In the past, it was, and still nowadays, it's studied by the detection of its genetic material. It's like the PCR test, similar to the one that's on SARS-CoV-2 nowadays, and many people have heard of. There are animal models that exist, using mainly the murine or virus that infect mice because this virus is able to replicate uh, in vitro in cells, in culture, so it's very easy to, to use. But for human uh, neurovirus, for a long time, there was no in vitro model, so we could not replicate the virus in vitro. So there was a lot of questions that we could not address, and there were some studies that were done on human volunteers because that was the only way to assess whether the virus was infectious or not.
0: And what are human intestinal enteroids?
1: So these uh, are actually adult intestinal stem cells. So they are derived from intestinal crypts that are taken from the tissues of healthy donors. So These are often people that undergo bariatric surgery. And then the healthy tissues are used to make uh, human intestinal enteroids that can grow in vitro in 3D in a gel. So we have them in uh, culture incubators. And they grow in a very rich medium, full of niche factors and growth factors that allow them to remain stem cells. And then we can also differentiate them, so they become like very little cells of that recapitulate a gut. It's a very physiological model of the gut that was uh, set up in the late uh, 20s. It's uh, used nowadays to understand a lot of uh, gut functions. And in 2016, the team of Mary Estes in the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, has published a very important paper that showed that human neurovirus can replicate in these cells, human stem cells, and now this allows to study if the neurovirus can stay infectious by looking at whether it can infect the cells or not in vitro.
0: And you mentioned earlier some different types of noroviruses. Can you quickly tell us about the different kinds?
1: Yes. So indeed, norovirus is highly genetically diverse. So the genus uh, has um, a lot of different genogroups inside, and the different genogroup uh, can infect either people, so genogroup 1 and genogroup 2, uh, per, for example, can infect people, but other genogroups can infect other mammals. And inside the genogroups, there are also many, many genotypes, like more than 50. And there are also tentative genogroups and genotypes because there is still a lot of diversity to be discovered in this genus of viruses. And do these different
0: types affect people differently?
1: Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. Actually, neurovirus detection and genotyping, characterization of each genome, are not performed systematically in sick people because, well gastroenteritis can stop quite fast, so people don't always undergo a lot of tests. But even though in the past decades we observed that one genotype was more often found in people, so it's the G24 genotype, that's very, very more frequent than all the others. So there might be several reasons why other genotypes are less frequently detected. It could be underestimated because they are less pathogenic, so the people do not Healthcare, so they are not tested, so then we cannot see these viruses, or maybe also they can affect some specific populations like children, or probably also they are just less well transmitted in the human population, so they are less present.
0: And how is norovirus spread?
1: So noroviruses they mainly spread from person to person. This is described as the faecal oral route because the virus is secreted in the stool of infected people, sometimes for several weeks. It can be rather long, and so good hand hygiene is very important there. So we believe that the virus can be uh, transmitted from touching surfaces or from uh, direct contact between a sick person and a receiving person. But there's also very important new research that's gone out like two weeks ago that suggests that the transmission can also occur through saliva. There is strong evidence in mice, and it has still to be confirmed in humans, but this could explain some things that were quite weird about the way norovirus can spread in humans. So, fecal our route hand hygiene, but maybe also saliva is possible. And there are also other modes of contamination that is not directly for person-to-person, but through contaminated food and water, like ready-to-eat food that can be contaminated by food and lots that are sick and that have uh, bad hand hygiene. But also there are fresh producers like shellfish, berries, or salad that can be contaminated during the production when the waters that are used are uh, contaminated. So what's very interesting here is that there are differences in the transmission mechanism between the different genotypes. As I said, the G24 genotype is the most frequent in the human population, and it's also more detected in large outbreaks with um, human-to-human transmission, like in boats, cruise ships, and um, healthcare facilities also, where the density of people is high, and there we can find a lot of G24 genotypes. But other genotypes, for example, like the G23, G26, G11, are more detected in waterborne or shellfish-borne outbreaks. So, there seems to be a kind of selection in the mode of transmission.
0: And you mentioned particles earlier, are norovirus particles particularly infectious?
1: Yes, actually they are. So, the first studies estimated the infectious dose to be around 10 viral particles, so that's very, very low. So there are more recent estimations that converge more around 100 to 1,000 particles to establish an infection in humans, but it's still quite low compared to other viruses. What makes them also particularly infectious is that the virus is known to be very resistant, so it can stay in the environment or in surface. It can remain, be believed to remain infectious for a very long time. So that also increases the risk to be contaminated.
0: Your article talks specifically about shellfish being a main source of contamination. How does this happen?
1: So shellfish are one of the main foods implicated in norovirus foodborne outbreaks in Europe and also in the U.S. So it's not a main source of contamination because it's rather low compared to person to person. But among the foodborne epidemics, it's really a striking phenomenon that shellfish are often implicated. So how does it happen? The cycle is uh, quite simple. So the virus is excreted in stool by infected people. There it goes to sewage and the sewage are partially treated or they can also, the sewage can spill over and there it can reach environmental waters like surface water or coastal waters when you are near the seashore. And there you can have contamination of the shellfish during the production. Because um, shellfish filter feed. So they filter large quantities of, of water from which they take out their food, which are little particles of algae, for example. But th- doing that, they also capture the viruses that are in the water. Another reason is that most shellfish are eaten either raw or very lightly cooked. And oysters, in particular, are eaten raw. So there is no cooking and the infectious risk is very high. Another reason, finally, especially for oysters, is that oysters express a molecule in their tissues that is uh, very similar to the one that is known to bind norovirus in humans. So in humans, uh, norovirus are known to interact with a little molecule, which is of the sugar family, that is called the histoblood group antigen. And this molecule, there is one that is very similar in shellfish. So this should believe believed to contribute to the accumulation of the virus in the shellfish tissue. So shellfish are not infected because the virus is specialized to humans, so it cannot infect, infect shellfish. But the shellfish can accumulate the virus and like 10 times more concentrated in the shellfish tissue than in the water surrounding it.
0: You mentioned some ways that this norovirus contaminates seawater. You want to go over that a little bit more again?
1: Actually, norovirus is not so concentrated in the seawater itself, so there is no very weak risk when bathing, and it's there only in areas that are submitted to sewage discharge, so it's not all the seawater, (laughs) and especially not in areas where people go for recreational activities and sunbathing and stuff like that. And another characteristic of the contamination is that it's usually very transient, like the sewage spillover spillover comes by and then goes away. But the shellfish that are there, then they can concentrate and integrate the contamination and keep it for a very long time. So um, it's a concentration in quantity but also in time. So that's why the risk is really increased uh, in shellfish in particular rather than in seawater.
0: I see. So it's dangerous for people that eat the shellfish. The shellfish don't get infected themselves, and swimming in those areas is actually okay.
1: I must just out that in the U.S. and in Europe, there are a lot of surveillance of shellfish-producing areas. The shellfish that are sold to consumption are usually contamination-free. So there can be accidents, but there are a lot of work that's been done to check on the existence of contamination and especially neurovirus. How was persistence
0: of these infectious human norovirus in shellfish investigated previously?
1: So the first data that were used to estimate how long the virus can stay infectious in shellfish were actually epidemiological data and case studies where we could use the delay between the contamination event and the consumption. For example, when um, shellfish were known to be kept in a separated tank on the shore for several weeks sometimes, we know that the contamination occurred before, and then when they are eaten and there are sick people after that, and we confirm that neurovirus is really implicated and was present in the shellfish, we can say, oh, so the virus stayed infectious for these several weeks in the shellfish tissue. So um, cases like that showed that the virus could stay infectious for quite a long time. After that, the field has turned to more mechanistic studies. And since norovirus was still not culturable easily, we've been using related virus, that's the Tulane virus. So the Tulane virus belongs to the same family, the Calisiviridae family, the norovirus, but to another genus, the Ricovirus genus. So it's a Sinian virus. It's easily culturable. It has also a fecal oral transmission route. And very importantly, It binds similar ligands and norovirus. So it's a very interesting model because then we can have uh, the ability to take into account how the virus interacts with the shellfish tissue. In our lab, we have checked that this virus really behaves in oysters like norovirus. And so previous studies have shown that this Tulane virus can persist for up to three weeks in shellfish tissue using a quite high initial dose but still it showed that the virus can stay infectious for several weeks.
0: Why did you want to do this study?
1: These studies with the Tulane virus, there are some limitations. First, it's believed that norovirus may be more stable than the surrogate viruses that are used to replace him when we cannot do directly experiments on norovirus. Then people have been using a Tulane virus or murine norovirus, and we know that it's possible that norovirus may be even more stable than these viruses. So then you underestimate the countermeasures that you should apply. Also, Tulane virus doesn't have the genetic diversity that is seen in a different norovirus. And then also, of course, you cannot compare different norovirus genotypes if you use Tulane virus. So we could not access to the question of whether different genotypes were selected in the shellfish and in the environment because they are not as stable, all of them. And then also the enteroids model, the human intestinal enteroids, were finally accessible to allow direct assessment of infectious human norovirus. So for all these reasons, we wanted to undergo this study to check how long norovirus could remain infectious in the environment. So, we could not directly go to shellfish because the um, protocol to recover the virus from shellfish tissue is not ready yet for infectious virus, which is quite challenging. But we had a protocol ready to recover it from seawater. So, we started with seawater. It's the last step before shellfish contamination. It's an interesting proxy to estimate how long the virus can remain in shellfish because it would be the same temperature, the same salinity. So that's why we first focused on seawater, and we used norovirus and Tulane virus to check how long they can remain infectious.
0: You used enteroids to evaluate human norovirus in the seawater. How did you do that?
1: So enteroids, as I said, they are cultured in vitro in a gel, and they were given to us by Marie Estes, the inventor of the norovirus culture model. She also shared with us very kindly all the regions and protocols So thanks to her, we were able to establish the anterior culture in our lab, which was quite challenging. I must uh, say that when you infect a cell with a virus, often you would think that the cell is going to die, so you can just look at your culture and say, okay, the virus is there and the cells die. It's very easy. That's the case, for example, for the Tulane virus. But no virus in anterior by eye, you don't see anything. On the microscope, there is no effect on the culture. So this is... A bit tricky because it makes, then you, you need to measure the amount of virus in your culture to know whether it's really replicated or not. So how do we do that? We have a duplicate infection. We put the virus on two cultures at the same time, and one of them is stopped after one hour. And this is the baseline attached virus on the cell that we use as a reference. And then the second culture is kept for three days to allow the virus to grow in the cell. After the three days, we also stop the culture by freezing it. Then we extract, extract the viral genome from all the cultures. We quantify the amount of viral genome using the PCR. And we compare the condition after one hour and the condition after three days. And if the virus did replicate in the anterior culture, we should see more geno- viral genome after three days than at one hour. And this is how we can say that the virus is really replicating and that it is still infectious. Is there anything else you want to tell us about how you conducted this study? Yes, yeah, so I told you about the enteroids issue <laughs> and how we use them. But actually, before using the anteroids, what we did is to have fresh seawater from the French shores that were sun filtered, and then we put virus in the seawater. So we used three different viruses. So the Tulane virus, because we wanted to have a comparison with our previous work using this virus. And then we used two human neurovirus genotypes, the genotype G24, which is the main virus circulating in the human population, as I said already, and the G23, which is rather frequent but less than G24, and uh, is interesting because it's uh, often found in foodborne epidemics. So we wanted to see whether this virus, G23, was more uh, detected in shellfish or berries or salads, maybe because it was more stable than G24. That was our main hypothesis. So these different viruses, the seawater was split in little tubes that we kept at 12 degrees in the dark. And then we did the random sampling of these tubes for several weeks and we quantified the genome of the viruses in seawater and we also purified the infectious virus and inoculated them on steroids. And then, as I said, we quantified using the PCR and we compared one hour versus three days of the culture and we did three different experiments with three different water samples.
0: And after all this, what did you find? Did you find out how long noroviruses last in seawater and then these shellfish?
1: Yes, yeah, so we had a very interesting result, we think. So the two first experiments showed that norovirus genome was very stable and the Tulane virus at the genome level was already less stable than norovirus. And then if, you, if we looked at infectious virus, not just the genome, but the full virus that is replicating or not, we could detect infectious norovirus for up to five weeks in seawater and Tulane virus for up to three weeks, like we did in shellfish. So here we saw that uh, norovirus was more stable than Tulane virus. But the last experiment was a bit different. So there was a fast drop in the genome levels for both viruses and an even faster loss of infectious virus. Norovirus, both noroviruses, were still more stable than Tulane virus but they were really, really less stable than in the two first experiments.
0: Was any of this a surprise to you?
1: Yes, it was very surprising on several levels. So the first surprise was that we had similar results between the G2-4 and the G2-3 human noroviruses. As I said, we suppose that G2-4 was maybe less resistant, and that's why we see it less in a foodborne or a waterborne contamination. But it was not the case here because both viruses had really the same behavior. So we think it's possible that anteriorids may be more sensitive to G24, so then we overestimate their ability to persist. Or more accurately, we underestimate the ability of G23 to persist. Or maybe also because we only tested one condition, seawater at 12 degrees, and maybe at different temperatures or salinities, or maybe in shellfish, this stability would be different between the two viruses. So there's more research to be done, as always. The lesser stability of Tulane virus was never shown directly, but it was suspected. So that was not really a surprise. But the very big surprise was how variable the results would be between seawater samples that were of the same origin, that were sun-filtered, and really we see very different results in the same condition, 12 degrees in the dark. So this opens a lot of new questions at what in the seawater drives and impacts so much on norovirus stability and persistence.
0: As with any new investigation, I imagine there were challenges. I think you mentioned one before. Can you tell us what some of them were?
1: So as I said, yeah, establishing the interway culture in the lab was quite challenging. Although we had a lot of help with the Atlantic Ocean separating us, it was not very easy always to have the good ways to handle the cells, etc. So it took quite almost a year to have the system running. Um, but thanks to the help we got, we are very happy to finally have good results. The experiments in themselves were also a high burden of work because we had to have antioid cells ready to be infected at each time point. So we had to come on weekends to prepare the cells. We had to do a lot of cell culture and then a lot of PCR to measure viral genome. So for a small team like ours, it was a lot of work, but it was really rewarding. And the last challenge was the variability issues in the seawater. So after the three experiments and seeing how the third experiment was so different from the two first, we really tried to understand what happened and to overcome these variability issues. But then finally we understood that it was very important information actually because it really shows that if you use natural seawater, there are lots of different things inside that could impact you know, virus stability. And this is very important research to be conducted to really understand how the, the nature of the seawater could have an impact on the quality of the shellfish where they are grown.
0: Would you consider that the most important public health implication of
1: your study? Yes, it's a very important implication of the study because knowing how the virus can persist in the environment, then we can design adequate measures to handle the contamination. So we showed that virus are highly stable in seawater and another important result is that the surrogate virus, two-line virus, was actually underestimating this stability. I think it's also important to keep in mind when designing these countermeasures because then if you use the data on surrogate viruses, you risk underestimating the stability and, and not being strong enough to counter norovirus. For example, the current countermeasures that are applied on shellfish so it could be either the depuration, that means that when the shellfish have a high burden in bacteria, in fecal bacteria, which can happen if the seawater was tainted by sewage, then the shellfish are taken out of the seawater and they are put in tanks on the shore and in clean seawater that is purified and cleaned. And then for a few days, it's enough for the bacterial load to go down. But we know that it's poorly efficient on virus, at least at the genomic load. I mean, the presence of viral genome is not affected by this countermeasure. So understanding how long the virus can persist in this condition, maybe we could increase the duration of the depuration process, or we could just know that it's not going to have an infection and know we have a proof for that. And also the second important countermeasure, at least in Europe, is that the production areas for shellfish can be closed for several weeks when there is a proof of norovirus contamination. And this number of weeks actually need to be based on the actual risk. So it needs not to be too long, not to impact the producers too much, but it also needs to be long enough for the norovirus to be deactivated. And what our studies show is that several weeks is really needed, actually.
0: How do you hope this information from your study will be used going forward? More studies or, like you said, more guidelines?
1: I think before really having guidelines, we need more studies. It is just a first study using this system, so it gives a lot of information, but it's still on a limited number of experiments, a limited number of conditions also, because we only tested one temperature, for instance. So I hope that with this study, there will be other teams that are going to use system of Ontario to study norovirus persistence, maybe in other matrices or in other conditions to compare with our conditions. And we need more information on the norovirus persistence to calculate the half-life, to estimate the impact of the temperature, the impact of the viral strain, etc., to really be able to consolidate the regulations on the closure of production areas and guidelines for producers.
0: Let's just talk about norovirus as an illness for a little bit here. What are the signs and symptoms of it?
1: Well, it's very classical uh, acute gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, abdominal cramps, really the classical experience by many people. And actually, there are millions of cases worldwide of norovirus because it's the main cause of acute viral gastroenteritis. And uh, it's estimated uh, 1 million hospitalizations worldwide per year an economic burden of $60 billion worldwide. So it's, it's really uh, actually a common pathogen and a common disease.
0: Does anyone die of it?
1: Well, most of the cases are self-resolving in a few days, but sadly, there are more complicated cases. So, for example, there can be chronic infection of immunocompromised people. So they don't die often, but it can really impact on their quality of life. But the virus can also be life-threatening for the elderly and especially in children in developing countries through dehydration mostly. So the virus still causes, uh, we estimate, 200,000 deaths per year worldwide, mostly in developing countries.
0: And once somebody has norovirus, is there a treatment?
1: There are no specific treatments. So people can always use the painkillers or antipyretics to let the fever go down. But the main treatment is rehydration because that's the main risk, to be dehydrated. And the vaccine is under development, but it's not available yet.
0: The vaccine would be interesting since there's so many different types of it, right?
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to set up for this region. I think they are mostly targeting the G24 genotype. Are there ways people
0: can protect themselves from getting it?
1: So since think the... Contamination goes from hand to mouth. The good hand hygiene is very important, especially if you are symptomatic. You need to be very careful, but there are also asymptomatic infections. Also, the virus excretion can last for several weeks, even after the symptoms have been resolved. So actually, you will need to be always careful and to keep a good hand hygiene all the time. Um what we noticed also is that the countermeasures that were enforced during the COVID emergence were able to dramatically drop the number of cases of gastroenteritis and also of norovirus circulation. So social distancing and wear- wearing masks also help against norovirus.
0: Yes, wearing a mask, you wouldn't be touching your mouth then with your dirty hands, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. You don't touch your mouth with your hands so much. And with this new research about norovirus in saliva, it also sheds light on another possible mechanism.
0: I learned recently that C. diff isn't affected by hand sanitizer, that you actually have to wash your hands with soap and water. Do you know if norovirus can be killed with hand sanitizer?
1: So um, anteroys were used to check uh, on this kind of question whether norovirus was efficiently deactivated by uh, alcohol, and actually uh, chlorine is much more effective, and uh, alcohols are not very effective to uh, decontaminate norovirus. So there were no specific uh, hand sanitizer formula that was tested on norovirus that um, that I know of, but since the virus resisted quite well to alcohol probably it's not very efficient
0: so places that have like hand sanitizer stations outside of food areas it's not really going to help with norovirus then
1: well it's always better than nothing but it's probably not the best one and it's still efficient against bacteria so it's still good practice well tell us about your job
0: and your career path and where you work
1: I am an environmental biology researcher. I joined the Health Environment and Microbiology Lab in twenty sixteen. So this lab is part of the IFREMER French Institute for Marine Research. So that's why we are looking for the coastal environment and we in our lab we are specialized specialized in studying the human pathogens in the coastal environment. So myself I have a PhD in biology that I got at the Pasteur Institute in Paris in two thousand eleven. And uh, for this, I was studying the interaction between muscle cells and human viruses, htlv one and influenza 1, so uh, influenza A, so other other viruses. Then I went to the Pasteur Institute of Bangui in Central African Republic for a short stay where I studied the evolution of yet another virus, the chikungunya virus in Central Africa. And then I uh, joined the or as a postdoc at the Curie Institute in Paris from 2012 to 2016, where I worked on HIV interactions with macrophages. And yet another virus, but a very famous one. And so nowadays, I focus on enteric viruses and I mainly work on norovirus. And the main question that drives my research is how is the virus transmitted through the coastal environment? What is specific of this mode of transmission to shellfish? Is the virus selected? Is it a source of new diversity? And then through which mechanism does all this happen?
0: Well, you have a very varied career. What's your favorite thing you've ever worked on?
1: That's a tough question because actually I had fun and, and all of them. So I think all viruses are very fascinating. I really enjoy my postdoc on HIV because HIV is a very well-known virus, so the community is very wide and you learn new things and very interesting things all the time. It's a very fascinating field. But my current position on neurovirus is really interesting too. These are very uh, interesting viruses because of this striking diversity and, uh, and their mode of transmission also, uh, which are varied, are also very fascinating. So... I, I am not sure I have a favorite thing. Maybe I'm just happy doing what I do. <laughs> I, guess I'm, I guess I'm very lucky.
0: <laughs> you are very lucky, and you do have a very interesting career. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Dedouy.
1: Thank you very much for having me and uh, giving me this opportunity to widen the question we are working on.
0: And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the July 2022 article, use of human intestinal enteroids to evaluate persistence of infectious human norovirus in seawater online at cdc.gov eid i'm sarah gregory for emerging infectious diseases for the most accurate health information visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-cdc-info